Hello and welcome to Session 8, the final session of the 2022 WSC Spotlight. This session is titled Innovations in Quality Improvement Strategies in All Settings, featuring five outstanding researchers in the field, and the session is moderated by our very own Alison Fox Robichaud. Alison, over to you. Welcome, everybody, to this final session of our um, Global Sepsis Alliance World Sepsis Day Symposium. Um, our session eight today is on innovations and quality improvement strategies in all settings. Um, I'd like to thank the sponsors and particularly the special sponsor for this session, CSL Bearing. Um, our first speaker today is Professor Josh Latour of the University of Plymouth in the United Kingdom. Josh is a um, professor of nursing, both in Plymouth and at Penan Children's Hospital in China. Um, he has a special interest in patient and family-centered care, including sepsis, and is um, an associate editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Josh, your talk today is Toda Sobra Mia Madre, Empowering the Patients and Empowering the Parents. Take it away. Yeah, thank you very much, Alison, for your very kind invitation, and thank you for the invitation anyway. And I was certainly very pleased with the title, Todo Sobre Mi Madre, because it's obviously, usually I have English uh, titles, but I love this one. It's all about moms, possibly. They take a lead in whatever we do, and we should recognize that. I have no conflict of interest to declare for this 10 minutes presentation, but I'd like to do this a bit of scene setting and particularly start with the child as our patient. Um, do we need safety netting procedures for children with fever? And because we all know that fever is it's one of the symptoms that leads to particularly sepsis, yes or not. And do we need them in the community and our hospital settings? Now, if we look at our children, how much do we need to sort of um, suffer actually with some children who have been um, faced some difficulties in, in, in the health system? Like here in the UK, we've got a couple of children who have been sort of a victim of a string of blunders by our health system work, healthcare workers. That all three died, and this is where the parents actually came into action, where they say, hey, oh, we need to do something. You need to teach us to prevent as early as possible um, how, we can, how we can help, um, because they want to be educated well. They want to have the signs and symptoms of early sepsis known earlier in the, in the pathway of the child becoming sick. So in that case, I'm going quickly to the setting the scene of the parents, which is uh, one of the questions leading to, do we need to provide parents information to identify early sepsis, yes or not? I'd like to share with you then some work we did a couple of years ago, which is called the Early Sepsis in Children Assessment by Parents, where we did an evaluation. What we did is actually this whole set of symptoms. Um, parents were part of our project. They said, we, you can have a traffic light system, green, amber, and red. You don't need to see the green, but tell me and teach me what the amber risks are and tell me what and where should I go. So if you can see on this slide, 
the symptoms are there, but also the advice of where to go if you tackle one of these symptoms in your child. But we also had, obviously, the rat symptoms uh, together developed with a whole range of professionals, not only in ICU, but in emergency and ambulance services. So together we came up with this set of uh, symptoms. So this was the initial initial sort of um, leaflet for parents, which was developed nearly eight years ago. But we did a, a survey, an evaluation, where the satisfaction with the um, general practice surgery, this or the, the family doctor or the health center, how did the parents actually receive that uh, leaflet? And they were actually overly uh, satisfied with the service of the of the service of the um, health uh, GP practice. But what more important is in qualitative uh, questions is that parents were writing that it was a very useful um, leaflet for deciding whether to get further advice or not, or just put it on my fridge for me to be not for me to worry more. I'm already aware of most of the signs to look out for, and your gut instinct, I found, is always right. And this is just so important, the gut instinct of parents. We need to recognize that. Um, so there were some initial recommendations that we would need to sort of roll out this leaflet, which has taken on board by the um, UK sepsis initiative, uh, and they revise it further. But also we need to look for educational strategies for parents and, and professionals to increase the knowledge and understanding of the leaflet, but also evaluate that leaflet. So what's the next chapter then? Setting the scene for the next chapter. And here comes another debate. Huh? Is parental concern the most important trigger to start the sepsis protocol? Yes or not? And where are we in that case? Um, we've done some work together with Amanda Harley um, in um, Queensland, Australia. Uh, Lorenz Schlappach, you all know, he has been um, instrumental in this uh, pediatric sepsis uh, campaign. And we looked at the role of parental concern and recognition of sepsis in children. Now, we identified a number of articles, but actually only one paper that was prospectively assessing the diagnostic performance of parental concern uh, in children evaluated for infection. And highly likelihood ratio for sepsis meningitis in presence of parental concern was, was, was figured out there. And I think that, that actually indicates that so far, overall, across the world, the parental concern, how we defined it as you can see in the comments here, parental concern was described as this is a different illness. Uh, this looks different. The statement by the parents that this illness was different from previous illnesses is really important. So this is where we need to recognize it. And the role of parents, yeah, well, parental concern was listed as a sign assisting recognition of sepsis in four studies in our review. And then there were six reviews commented on parental concern listed as a factor upon diagnosis of sepsis. Um, so overall, there's limited 
currently limited emphasis on parental concern, particularly when it comes to decision-making processes. So where are we in this whole COVID era then, the last two years? Well, this is the work we've done with Emma Lim and colleagues uh, together in Newcastle, up in uh, the northern part of England, where a similar, a similar leaflet was developed, and we thought we need to get it out because we've spotted actually in the emergency department a decline in visitations by sick children. So we thought, what happened actually with these children at home? So here you go again, a, a bit of a similar uh, leaflet with green, amber and red signs and also some signposting tips where to go. Now, we are actually very simple um, a small group of parents, would this work for you? Where do you go normally? Would this leaflet help you? Yes or not? And then 93% or nearly 94% of our parents, over 170 parents, said, yeah, it was actually helpful at home. And after reading this leaflet, how do you feel about recognizing if your child is seriously ill? And we sort of asked about their confidence, and the majority of the parents felt more confident. So in summary, I think um, we should actually remember that todo sobre mi madre um, is that we need to look at the parents because we think, and I believe personally, that parents are excellent partners to fight against sepsis, particularly pediatric sepsis, but also that us, we health professionals, need to trust parents and include their concern as a trigger as early as possible. Because we try actually, and the Sepsis UK uh, tries to educate the whole public actually, if you go into the emergency, and we try to say, to teach them, always ask your doctor, could this be sepsis? And that's really important. Please allow them to sort of learn, to, to, to be assertive and empower them actually to us when they come and visit the um, the emergency department. So for, for so far, I would like to thank you for my 10 minutes uh, brief, and I really hope you uh, are able to sort of well, have a debate what you're doing in your region, in, your, in the world, and how does that fit in your own practice yet or not. So thank you very much, and I think over to uh, Alison. Thanks, Josh. Um, I remind the audience to put questions up um, in the chat if you um, have any questions viewing. Um, I don't see any at this time, but Josh, um, that's very interesting work. Um, the corollary is, what is the reception of the physicians on the other side of all of this? Because many times, I will, you'll hear it from our colleagues that say, like, how does this patient know? How does this family actually know this is sepsis? You know, maybe they're wrong. They're not physicians. Google doctor, maybe Aldo's going to tell us a little bit about Google doctor going forward. But, um, you know, it, it, we can empower patients, but uh, it, it, they have to be listening ears on the other side. Well, I think you hit a bit of a sensitive issue here, Alison. Um, while we were doing eight years ago, developing the sepsis leaflet, we then thought, 
And we heard already some concerns by physicians as well, not only in physicians in the um, general practice, uh, like, like the family doctors, but certainly the emergency doctors and, and further down the line of the pathway. They said, oh, well, uh, so if you give that out, we will be overloaded because parents might mis misinterpret actually all these signs. And so far, I mean, there's no studies actually looking at the impact of giving parents education um, or, or information leaflet, whether that impact the emergency department admissions, whether that, 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 that increase whatever um, pediatric admissions, which are unnecessary, or we, we don't want to prevent that. I think one of the next few years of the major research which we need to do is a sort of prediction modeling with this uh, apparent leaflet and see if we can predict if parents tick the right boxes of what they observe, if we can predict and have some certain pathways or templates where they should go, yes or not. That is... Uh, Currently, in my opinion, a missing link. But really, I'm honestly, yeah, it is. It is a concern. I think you hit the nail here. Uh, we do have one quick question from the audience. Do you think parents' intervention would be most needed in low-income countries? Well, a perfect question. To be honest, I heard this before because um, one of my colleagues, and I think even Tex Kasun. He has been doing lots of work in Africa where these little little information leaflets are having a massive impact and saving children's lives. Um, and I think that's the, the, the opposite side, because here we go again. In low and middle income countries, resource, resource cold countries almost, these, 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 these resources, these leaflets, have a bigger impact, in my opinion, on child health and outcomes than in possibly in the high developed countries, yes or not. I think there is, there is differences in there, particularly when the, um, so the healthcare system is not as widely spread out in some countries. I can go to sub-Saharan countries where you have no hardly any hospitals. When I was driving in the, in the Sahara the other day, there comes this, this, this father on a, on a camel with a small child bleeding. And I thought, hey, oh, I'm helping him, but I could help this guy and, and signpost. But, but, I mean, can you imagine? He was on his camel for hours already. So this is, this is definitely something for some countries more, more relevant, to be honest. Thanks for those Thank excellent questions. Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Latour. Our next speaker is Professor Aldo Fazel from um, Imperial College London, where he is a professor of artificial intelligence and neurosciences. Um, he looks at the interface between machine learning, medicine, and translational engineering. Um, and he's going to speak to us today about using AI to improve sepsis management, lessons learned from development and implementation, of the artificially intelligent child. Professor Faisal, take it away. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think it's meant to say artificially intelligent clinician, not the child, although we're thinking about taking it into the pediatric ICU in the coming years. So hello, and thank you very much for the invitation. So I should warn you, I'm not a clinician, 
I'm a biomedical engineer and computer scientist working intensely with clinicians on trying to think about how can we improve the treatment and management of sepsis, specifically in ICU. And so this goes back to work that we started uh, a while back uh, and are periodically updating the community on, and we call this system the AI Clinician, that is basically it's a decision support system for clinician that makes recommendations about the dosage of IV fluids and vasopressors in uh, managing the fluids balance uh, of patients during sepsis. And this is work that we've been developing and growing. It's now become a proper program with a fantastic team of clinical and engineering and human factors and medical device collaborators that we're running across four hospitals in London uh, that allow us to deploy this technology um, in the form of a semi-autonomous recommender system. So just to basically give you a feeling for what a recommender system is, for those of you who have not interacted with that frequently, uh, the way we take this view is we're not engineering a system, handcrafting it, we're using patient data. We're using data about patient records, about what their medical state is as quantified by their data uh, that's generated in ICU on a second-by-second -second basis. Then we have a recommendation engine that digests this data. And based on that, we then recommend specific dosages and treatments. And that's not something in general like this person is sick, this person is not sick. So this is really a system that minute by minute, second by second, evaluates the patient states and then prompts uh, clinicians, for example, to keep the IV fluid dosage at a certain level, increase it, do nothing, or uh, change the vasopressor dosage. So it's really an interactive treatment that thinks about polypharmaceutical interventions and makes recommendation based on experience. So uh, we've been building this system, we've been able to demonstrate retros and retrospective data that whenever on a data set of over 40,000 patient records of patient trajectories in ICU, uh, the, the AI clinician and the human decisions agreed uh, basically, that then the mortality of the patients was lowest. And whenever, for example, in the domain of vasopressors, there was uh, a departure of what clinicians prescribed to patients above or below what the AI clinician would have done in that situation, mortality increased. There's an interesting thing happening here on the left-hand side. Uh, I hope you can see my pointer. If not, I'll make it visible. Uh, I hope you can see that now. Uh, that in this case, the IV fluids, if you give substantially less IV fluids, seems to have little impact in, um, in, in mortality. But that's, of course, a known effect. There was, in fact, a whole clinical trial uh, showing that you can underdose by up to one liter from common uh, uh, recommendations and still no see a change in, um, um, in, in, in mortality. And the interesting thing here is this is something that the system learned by itself from operational hospital data. Uh, and it basically, uh, you could think about ways of using this type of technology to prompt and query uh, and ask, where should we uh, you know, focus and target uh, future clinical trials? However, now we're coming to a stage where we're actually deploying this system in four ICUs. Uh, and so here we need to think about interactions at a very different level, because now we have a system that says, why don't you do this to your patient? And many of you may be familiar with alerts that are very often uh, clicked away by, uh, by stress clinicians. And so we need to think here about a whole range of different technologies that we need to employ uh, that uh, can help build trust in AI system that allows us to learn from little data. And we cannot have millions of patients, uh, for example, to work out a treatment for COVID that's too late. Um, a system that basically can reason, present its reasoning like a human 
and it also can uh, allow, for example, for data sharing from different hospitals, from different organizations, while preserving the privacy of the uh, individual sources. And a key challenge we're finding is, of course, the interpretability. Does it make sense um, what the system uh, is recommending? So in our first iteration of the eye clinician, uh, which is by now three years old, uh, we, for example, were able to show, um, reconstruct based what the historical decisions of clinicians were, what they were paying most attention to. Uh, so he, for example, you see the most important factors for IV fluids was the PF ratio of the patient. Uh, while, for example, the AI system had, uh, you know, the total volume input as a, as a key factor. So very different features become apparent and important. And if you compare that, for example, for the vasopressor dosage as well, you see a slightly different ordering of the features, but also the AI system accounts for a lot more physiological variables uh, than uh, the clinicians did on average for their decisions. And so that's quite interesting and basically uh, speaks to, uh, to what sense we are overwhelmed or overburdened with data uh, when making decisions. And this is something where the eye clinician can basically uh, learn better decisions. And I should say the eye clinician is a very simple system. It's a system that basically observes the doctor-patient's interactions. So it observes the state of the patient and any intervention done by a doctor onto the patients, and then basically models that, and then basically tries to reproduce for equivalent patients similar recommendations done by clinicians. Now, of course, different clinicians may have different treatment strategies. So what the system does, it basically works out what the best individual decision for a patient in a certain state is, and then basically chains together the best decisions taken by the best doctors over time um, and basically builds the best possible strategy. So that's what we call a blind recommended system, a system that basically just, you know, tells you you should do this and you can, as a doctor, then choose to follow that or ignore it. Uh, we are now basically linking this up in now something that we're calling a learning your trust type method where now we are also starting to evaluate whether doctors are ignoring our recommendations or following our recommendations to basically adjust, for example, what information is presented and how the system can start improving and learning that. And here I wanted to show you uh, two important factors that we've been able to work on that have been not typically dissociated. So when you're building a system uh, that makes a recommendation, uh, of course, uh, you can recommend, you know, you should set certain dosages for treatment at a certain level. But what we never really know is how certain is the model. And so we've built then the mathematical background work to basically work out two factors of uncertainty. So one is what we call epistemic uncertainty that basically um, gives people a feedback um, about how confident the model is, that it actually knows what's going on. You can imagine a system that never experienced COVID suddenly seeing a COVID patient will be in unknown territory instead of being confident. It will basically say, I'm very unconfident. I don't know what's happening here. And the system will monitor itself continuously. But there's another form of uncertainty, namely that simply certain treatments can simply go either way. There's certain randomness in the physiology. And our technology basically uh, can separate these two forms of uncertainties that the system has and communicate them to the clinician, saying, you know, if you do this, there's a 50-50 chance it will go either way. Or it can say, this is a patient in a state that I've not seen before. But going beyond that, uh, we have started to work more on thinking about how can we make things explainable. And if you, if you interview loads of clinicians, you very quickly realize, and I'm just skipping a few slides, that there's actually not a simply communicable way of describing in what state is the patient. Is this patient going... Uh, 
how can you factor in the entire history of that patient uh, in this very diffuse space of, of trying to um, uh, maintain uh, the patient's fluid balance uh, during uh, a septic shock? So, so in this setting here, we basically took all this patient data and basically started with the idea, why don't we simply build a map using all this data and try to chart a map where we're saying patients that are nearby states uh, are, uh, are in nearby locations. And so, for example, a patient that is, um, say, in this regions of the map here where I'm pointing, uh, and then we can simply observe what happens uh, with your disease trajectory. And in this case, the patient will move from this location on the map to this location. It's an abstract map. It's many, many physiological variables represent an individual picture. But crucially, what I'm showing you here is basically the flows that patient follows if you don't interfere uh, with the disease through treatment. And what you're seeing here are valleys of death, so to speak, with very high mortalities and valleys of survival. Um, and you can basically see how patients gradually decrease in, in their uh, uh, survival probability and basically fall slowly into these death states. And when we can then basically argue with clinicians as saying, okay, this is uh, the state as it is collapsing due to uh, the course of the disease. And now here you can do a very specific intervention, basically dragging the patient in that direction with a certain um, uh, pharmacological combination of treatment that will basically steer them away from that. And basically we're now starting to establish this idea that there's a map. And this map here, which is very abstract, we can then link back to known physiological uh, factors. For example, um, if you look here at the hourly output of the patient, I'm showing you here all the regions of the map that have a very low hourly output and all the regions of the map that have a very high hourly output. We can look at, uh, you know, at the SOFA scores that patient had that are in certain regions of the map and so forth. So basically, we're trying to chart something that's very abstract, that's very difficult to communicate in words, that people have sort of very abstract cognitive maps in their head that they're using that. And basically we're doing a bit of cognitive neuroscience of, of, uh, of uh, ICU clinicians treating sepsis. And so these things that we are now rendering explicit and making explicit and using them uh, on, on a cohort of clinicians to basically inform them of decisions and trying to uh, see whether this way of explaining recommendation, this way of describing the state of the patient can be more meaningful um, uh, when they're basically trying to assess some very abstract uh, combinations of potential treatments that they're facing. And so basically what we want to make use of is massive source of healthcare time series data. And uh, we have plenty of public resources. We're building our own databases at the moment. And this is a very exciting area where we feel we can have a lot of impact. Atlas 1.0 was predicted to reduce mortality by roughly 8%. And we hope now that 2.0 that will soon release uh, can uh, provide even bigger impact. And so the AI Clinician Program 1.0 is freely available. You can download us if you contact us and uh, 2.0 will hopefully be released very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Faisal. Um, I don't see any questions in the chat just yet. Uh, I do have one for you. Um, in this system, are you using an electronic health record and how might you integrate new sepsis data into your system to make sure you're current with treatment yeah. strategies. So, so indeed, we're using electronic healthcare records, including, you know, beat by heartbeat by heartbeat, breath by breath data that you can get from current fully electronic ICU systems. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, we basically expanded a simplified version of our system uh, to the National Service Evaluation for COVID ICUs. 
And there we, we, we used half daily or twice daily paper-based records for institutions that were still paper-based. And that gave us some insight. But I think ultimately we're focusing here on, on the future in terms uh, that we believe that we're going to be fully digital and we'll have breath-by-breath -breath data as a standard feature. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Fran uh, Balamuth um, from the University of Pennsylvania, where she is a pediatric eMERGE physician. Um, I'm very curious about her pragmatic um, fluid trial of balanced fluids versus saline, but she's also leading or uh, co-leading the uh, National Quality Improvement Program for Pediatric Sepsis in the U.S. Um, Dr. Balmuth, your talk, Improving Recognition of Pediatric Systems by Digital Support. Perfect. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, <clears throat> that was a fascinating talk, and I'm going to kind of reduce the dimensionality by by many fold, I think, here today, although I, I think uh, moving towards AI dimensional data is super interesting, and I would love to see pediatrics, um, you know, go there um, in the coming years. Um, but I'm going to kind of focus it back um, to patients in the emergency setting, specifically children in the emergency setting, and talk about um, kind of a case instance in which we were able to improve sepsis recognition there using um, some vital sign, very basic based tools, um, and then thinking about impacts on things like equity, um, thinking about how do we actually define sepsis and figure out what we're looking for, and then touch on some kind of upcoming machine, more machine learning based techniques that are not quite in the AI space yet. Um, and then thinking about, you know, are, how, how these digital tools may fit um, in settings with lower resources. Um, but this, I think, is a common situation that um, every pediatrician has probably faced. Uh, a three-year-old um, in the waiting room that is highly febrile, uh, tachycardic, tachypnic, but normotensive, um, and is saturating normally on room air. Um, and the vast majority of the time, uh, you know, an hour later after some antipyretic medication, looks like this patient here, they have a self-limited viral illness, they go home, all is well. Um, but sometimes um, there's badness hiding there. And so this is a um, a famous case, case from the U.S., um, almost a decade old now, of a child, um, Rory Staunton, who presented similarly to this patient, um, but turned out to have um, group A strep sepsis, septic shock, and died um, on a return visit two days later to the ED. So I think um, emergency providers around the world uh, want to avoid situations like this. We want to be able to find sepsis where it's hiding um, and act quickly. Um, but this truly is a needle in a haystack kind of problem. Um, for example, in our emergency department, we see over 100,000 children a year. Um, about a quarter of those are there for some sort of infectious reason, and really a very small, less than 1% less than of them require ICU care for shock and organ dysfunction. Um, so this really is um, a thing that is, there's much more noise than there is actual um, critical illness. And so the conceptual model that we've kind of operated on is that we have lots and lots of kids with fever. Very few of them um, have will end up with um, critically ill from sepsis, um, but we would love to be able to improve their risk stratification on arrival. Um, we've thought about a suite of things, um, only really one of which I'm going to talk about today, but just to put it in context, um, I think hopefully in coming years we'll, we'll know something about patients' genetic risks for sepsis before they even show up in the ED, that we can use elements, um, kind of simple discrete elements that are available at the time of triage like vital signs and um, underlying conditions. Um, and then obviously there's laboratory tests that come um, later down the pike. But I'm really gonna focus today on the tool that we built around the green box in the middle. So can we, what can we use um, from triage to recognize sepsis better? So I think in thinking about um, sepsis for kids, like I said, this is kind of a needle in a haystack. And so for 
a while, I think there was um, concern about building electronic tools that were vital sign based because we were worried about um, alert fatigue, right? These things will go off all the time. They are annoying. People ignore them um, and they are sensitive and not terribly specific. But if we rely only on clinicians at the bedside to find sepsis, we know that we that we miss patients. Um, and so we decided to kind of trial um, a two-stage alert that we hoped would take into account the best parts of both technologies and humans at the bedside um, to improve the recognition of sepsis in kids. Um, before we put a, a prospective alert in, in place, we wanted to see kind of how a candidate tool would perform um, in the same ED setting with kids with fever. And we, we compared kind of real-time clinical decisions that people made over the course of um, a year and a half and compared that to this alert had it been in place. Um, and we're able to show that, you know, if the alert had been there, it would have found some of the patients that um, we missed clinically. And so we kind of used this um, as evidence to say, let's put um, a two-stage alert in place that we hope will help, um, again, kind of take the best and the, the best parts of both the clinical decision-making human side of things, as well as the computer. Um, so this is um, what the alert looks like. It fires if a patient has either tachycardia or hypotension. Um, and it asks uh, the triage nurse to think about whether the patient has any sort of concern for infection and then um, ask two questions about their perfusion and their underlying high-risk conditions, and then also incorporates information about their mental status. Um, and if they have one of those three things, so they, they have a possible infection, and then they also have either a high-risk condition or altered perfusion or altered mental status, um, that, that prompts um, what we call a sepsis huddle, where the team comes to the bedside. Um, and this is kind of where the human part comes in, where the team at the bedside um, develops kind of a shared decision shared mental model and decides, does this patient need um, sepsis treatment now or not? And, and there is kind of a maybe in the middle option as well. And we call that uh, the watcher. Um, we also do now have, um, so that alert kind of can go off um, only once during the ED stay. So if the patient um, has normal vital signs on arrival, but get, gets tachycardic later, um, then it will show up only once later on in the stay. Um, but if they are hypotensive, it can go off infinite numbers of times. And this is meant to find kind of hidden shock um, in the ED. In terms of how often the alert fires, this is very consistent now. This alert's been around for eight years now. Um, it goes off in about 15% of the patients that come to the ED. And we end up um, huddling on about 1% of ED volume. Um, and we treat for sepsis in about a quarter of those that we huddle on. Um, in terms of the alert alone, the alert itself is 86% sensitive. And again, this has been consistent now over, over many years. Um, and the positive predictive value is 25%, which is probably about tenfold higher than many other published tools. Um, interestingly, um, you know, our system itself, and I'll show you on the next slide, that we as a team recognize about 95% of patients with sepsis. And so that's because we kind of act in concert with the alert. And so are able, the alert can help us find some things that we would have clinically missed. But there are certainly things that the clinicians find um, that the alert doesn't necessarily find. And, but that combination of the two together um, works quite well. And so this is looking at um, the proportion of sepsis patients in our ICU that were kind of missed by the clinicians in the ED, meaning they didn't get treated for sepsis in the ED. And you can see that back, um, you know, almost a decade ago, before we had this alert in place, we were missing somewhere in the 15 to 20% range of uh, patients. And now for the last many years, um, we miss less than 5% of patients um, with sepsis. And that's with an alert that, that, you know, only finds 86% of the people. So there is definitely something that's happening on the clinical side um, that augments the alert performance. 
Um, there have been other tools that have been developed in other um, U.S. hospitals. I'll just highlight one here today that is performs pretty similarly to CHOP. It, again, uses similar types of vital signs and perfusion data that's available at the time of triage, um, and the sensitivity um, of the tool is really the same as ours. Um, and so I do think that probably there are elements of data maybe that, you know, people that you could pick up using a more advanced um, AI type system, um, or, or maybe it's not quantifiable. It's, I think it's, I think it's hard to know. I think one of the challenges um, in using AI in a system like the emergency department as, a pair, as opposed to the intensive care unit where folks are there for, you know, many days at a time is that the, the amount of data that we have on which to make decisions is brief, right? People walk in the door and that's what we have to work with. Um, and so the uh, machine learning will have to act on kind of minute to minute type data um, as opposed to hours or days of, of trends that we have to work with. Um, there's interest, I think, around the world now in making sure that our care is equitable. And so I think one thing that's interesting about these tool, using these tools to recognize sepsis as opposed to just clinician um, judgment at the bedside is to ask whether that can improve equity um, in a community. And so I'm just going to touch um, on that briefly. So this was looking at patients in our ED um, that were either treated um, for sepsis based on the electronic alert versus those who were treating out, treated outside of the alert. Um, and you can see um, that the that non-white patients um, were treated less for sepsis in the moments where the clinician's decision was involved, um, whereas we saw fewer um, disparities across um, racial categories when um, electronic alerts were um, activated to recognize sepsis. So this is just kind of an intriguing area to imagine, could we use these kind of electronic um, objective-based systems to help um, decrease um, disparate care in the emergency setting? Um, one other challenge, I think, in terms of finding sepsis in kids is, is um, what, are, what, what are we looking for? What's the definition of um, sepsis at the, at the back end? And so um, coming up with surveillance definitions to identify sepsis cases electronically in the hospital, I think, can help us further refine these recognition tools. Um, and so we did uh, one project to try to develop one of these novel surveillance algorithms um, that I'll just so show you briefly. This is kind of using, again, data in the electronic health record to identify, identify a combination of infection um, plus organ dysfunction. Sorry. Um, and the test characteristics of um, our algorithm are shown here. Um, and then we can then use that, that definition to kind of track um, both epidemiology across time um, at our hospital. And this is looking at um, incidence of sepsis over time as well as mortality. Um, and this is just kind of um, face validity of the model showing increased mortality with increased numbers of dysfunctioning organs. Um, and I think really kind of just to highlight what was said in the last hour, you know, can we use higher dimensional data to kind of take this to the next level? And so um, machine learning, I think, is certainly an area that's of high interest um, in the world of pediatric sepsis, similar to that of adults. Um, there have been some efforts in these in this area. This is um, uh, work by Halden Scott out of the University of Colorado um, in the United States using, again, kind of uh, machine learning-based predictive models to identify sepsis using information um, available at triage. Um, and there are efforts, I think, multi-center efforts um, in the States um, in this area as well. So I think we'll see kind of how, um, how good those granular data um, can get us in the coming years. Um, these are the predictors that have um, come up are in um, Dr. Scott's model. Um, and I think one other thing that's interesting in when thinking about these machine learning models versus um, kind of checkbox prediction rules where you actually know the input 
is kind of getting a sense. And I think you touched on this, um, Dr. Faisal touched on this in the last talk about how clinicians feel about that um, and whether they're okay with kind of a black box AI type situation where they don't exactly know what predictors are in there, but they know that the rules work well versus understanding um, the com each component of the predictors that are going into, into your model. And so I do think that kind of interface between the clinician um, at the bedside and the computer are going to be super key um, in, current, current, in coming years um, as we work to um, make these systems work as best as we can for children. Um, I think in the low resource setting area, I think is another key area, especially when we're talking about these super high tech solutions, although I think we are all well aware that these technologies, um, you know, can go in your pocket now more than ever, and monitors can go on watches on patients' wrists. And so I think, um, you know, the ability to have high dimensional data, even in a place um, with low resources, you can, you know, hook, hook up an ultrasound machine to your iPhone. Um, so I do think that these um, elements may be um, adaptable to various settings. Um, and we'll have to make sure that we take that into account as we move these systems forward. So I think I'll end with that and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you, Fran. Um, I'm just looking to see if there's any pop up in the chat. Um, I, what I'm seeing as we move along through these series is really how do we integrate the patient voice into this story in the emergency department? You know, the clinician buy-in, Fran, you didn't talk about that very much in terms of were the clinicians happy that the alert system was coming up? Did they feel comfortable with this? Could you translate it to other centers? But if you actually brought that patient voice or the, or the parent voice into this, what additional value would it add? Would it improve that predictability, your PPV, on that if you added the patient voice that says, you know, I, so, I really know something's off with my child? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I, I do think that you're totally right that the humans involved in this are not just the clinicians, but the families as well. Um, and I do think the kind of that huddle moment where, where the team has the ability to generate a shared mental model is certainly key, a, a key moment where bringing in patient voices um, is possible. And I think, you know, anecdotally, um, you know, I think uh, especially parents who are very, who have kind of chronically ill children who are very savvy about the medical system, I think are often included in these conversations, um, but maybe not in the systematic way. Um, but I totally agree with you that involving um, their thoughts and concerns um, certainly could help to augment the system. Um, and then in terms of the clinician buy-in to the alert, um, I do think we, we did a lot of work to try to decrease or decrease the alert frequency of firing as much as we could and show the data that it worked. Um, and I think that was probably the most compelling was to say, okay, this is a patient um, that, you know, that was not a clinically identified that the alert found. And I think that is always compelling um, to folks. Yeah, our next speaker is um, Dr. Chris Seymour. Chris will be, will be look, looking at an audio recording of his talk um, where he's um, the professor of critical care and emergency medicine at the University of uh, Pittsburgh and a member of CRISMA, which is their clinical research and investigation. Uh, Chris has a longstanding interest in um, sepsis phenotypes and indeed looking at interventions for precision medicine and sepsis. We can run um, Chris's talk, please. Good afternoon. My name is Christopher Seymour. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Pittsburgh, and I am excited uh, to join you for the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight. Uh, unfortunately, I am uh, not live today, but recording this in advance uh, on service in the intensive care unit. So, so I've asked for 10 uh, quick minutes uh, to talk about untangling sepsis heterogeneity and applying data-driven phenotypes to future trial design. 
we will move forward quickly with some financial disclosures here that I do receive some funding from the NIH uh, and some other uh, personal fees as below. So I can't begin any sepsis lecture these days without referencing this beautiful paper by Christina Rudd. Uh, we're all here in this audience uh, as champions for better sepsis care and identifying these patients as soon as possible. And the importance was really emphasized um, in the conclusion here from the GBD, which showed more than 50 million cases of sepsis across the globe annually. Now, there are many outcome studies uh, of uh, patients uh, that have varying comorbidities and age and demographics. Uh, and, and there are different uh, conclusions um, about how many survive. Uh, but years ago uh, in work uh, published in JAMA as part of the sepsis three uh, criteria, we showed that one in five patients, uh, particularly with organ dysfunction, don't survive their hospital stay. So the title of this chat involved discussing sepsis heterogeneity. And I like to use this cartoon uh, because both of these patients have the label of sepsis and yet their, their features are quite different. Uh, so on the left might be a 40 year old uh, gentleman with no comorbidities, presents with influenza, staph pneumonia, mechanical ventilation times 24 hours. Um, and alternatively, this older man has a few um, issues before sepsis and stage renal, heart failure, develops biliary sepsis, shock, you know, but they have the same label. And yet all of these differences, host response, site of infection, pathogen, organ injury intolerance. And, you know, makes us ask is really this, uh, is this the right path? There's complex physiology as shown in this uh, cartoon from Harrison's uh, that Dr. Emily Brandt, myself and Dr. Angus uh, prepared, uh, showing all kinds of um, uh, uh, different uh, perturbations uh, in the coagulation cascade, uh, in the inflammatory response, mitochondrial uh, function, uh, leading to a variety of micro and macro uh, changes. Now, the, the complexity has been even further shown here after endotoxin infusion uh, in this uh, very um, well-cited Calvano paper, now almost 17 years old, uh, with different uh, gene expression readouts uh, between placebo versus endotoxin. There's a whole lot going on uh, when our patients are septic, um, and they're not all the same. Uh, this is a, a prompt to remind us that our treatment guidelines still suggest a one-size-fits-all approach. <clears throat> now, when we talk about heterogeneity, and whether that one size fits all is really the right answer, uh, we need to set uh, forth some terms. And so uh, there are a variety of folks that use different terms for purposes of today. When I refer to a phenotype, I'm talking about a, a set of patients that share clinical features. Now, a subphenotype might be those that sort of inch towards uh, uh, a unifying mechanism as to why that patient group is similar. Uh, this could be the case in ARDS uh, with work from UCSF and others. Now, what's been interesting over the past 10 to 15 years has been a really uh, exponential increase in the number of phenotypes and the sort of subdivisions of sepsis as a syndrome. Uh, this was an uh, opinion piece or viewpoint we put into JAMA last year, particularly focusing on COVID, where there's, you know, almost 100 different subtypes of COVID proposed. Uh, but more interesting to this chat uh, is the graph on the left, which shows sepsis now almost 100 subtypes have been proposed in the literature. 
are lots of examples that involve transcriptomics or other multi-omic approaches. There's knowledge-based subtypes, um, graphical subtypes in the bottom, and then of course, uh, work by Hector Wong, uh, which is always important to highlight. Now, there are some potential pitfalls. All of these studies say they've um, evaluated sepsis patients, but as in this work, uh, Nature Digital Medicine coming out just in a few weeks, uh, we see all kinds of differences in how sepsis is applied to our patients. On the left is a cord plot uh, showing sepsis one, two, and three, and all the different variability and clinical features uh, that go into finding that syndrome. Whereas on the right, this heat map is showing uh, the different clinical features on the y-axis and on the x-axis are a variety of different publications uh, that have studied sepsis patients. And you see that they're not all using the same approach. There's quite a lot of variability. Okay. And even across the subtypes proposed, there's not a lot of agreement. This is some unpublished data from Nature Puro with the BI with the uh, gene ontology enrichment plot comparing Seneca phenotypes from clinical data Hector Wong's gene expression uh, phenotypes, and those by Carolyn Calfee from UCSF and ARDS patients. And when these labeling approaches were applied to the same 90 patients in the emergency department, we see that there's not a lot of overlap in terms of the pathways um, that are activated uh, contributing to these uh, sort of different subgroups. Okay. So it makes us ask, as we untangle sepsis heterogeneity, is it really appropriate to use one set of data or one trial? This is a, a recent paper in Cell Reports Medicine by Tim Billier, who's reanalyzed the PAMPER trial, which was testing pre-hospital FFP. Now, there was a, a, a phenomenal benefit uh, to the FFP uh, across these uh, injured patients, uh, but it was found to be particularly in one subset of patients when combining this multi-omic, multi-layer approach uh, as shown here in the schematic on the right. So one data type probably is not enough. So here's the Seneca paper that we often reference. This is now three years old, showing four different uh, subtypes of sepsis based upon clinical features, the electronic health record. Uh, this sort of set the stage uh, for uh, years of work that we've been doing to try to segregate patients uh, into treatment uh, response groups. Now they had different outcomes as shown as these cumulative probability curves for 365 day mortality, particularly even when applied across different trials, access, prowess, or process. But as we get to this point and we reflect back on what we've learned from the Seneca study, uh, it's interesting that um, there's a, a motivation to label these groups. Well, are they, the, are they a hyper-inflammatory or are they an adaptive group? Um, maybe they're primarily made of cirrhotic patients and so is it just liver dysfunction. Uh, but really when we think about the goal, we would propose that subtypes should be reproducible, clinically identifiable, non-synonymous, meaning non-overlapping with other uh, schema, biologically plausible, but most importantly, treatment responsive. So how do we find treatment responsive groups? Well, the typical approach would be sort of shown in this cartoon where we have a randomized trial of sepsis treatment. We start and we finish. At that point, then phenotypes might be derived. Then post hoc treatment effects are evaluated. But the problem is in this approach, uh, we're underpowered uh, for those phenotype specific treatment effects. The sample size calculation at the beginning of the trial did not power the trial or the uh, possible treatment effect based upon the frequency and the control rates inside those subgroups. They weren't defined a priori. Those phenotypes that we're searching for may not even have been present in the trial population. And you have to wait to the end of the trial uh, before understanding these treatment effects.
this is not ideal uh, for our knowledge generation or for our patients. Another approach, of course, would involve the same randomized trial of the same treatment, but where we apply these labels or subtypes uh, at the moment of randomization. And this allows us to adjust randomization, perhaps in, uh, in an adaptive trial design, uh, to these subgroups. And therefore, the trial learns as it goes uh, of which treatment by phenotype specific effects are beneficial to patients, to which more patients may be randomized to that subtype through response adaptive randomization. Some arms may not enroll patients um, if there's no benefit, whereas others may continue as shown on this green and blue uh, uh, arrow at the bottom. These are prospective changes. Uh, this adaptive design, as I mentioned, can uh, drop or add arms and potentially even have a smaller sample size. And you don't have to wait the five years until the trial is over. So what are some of the challenges here merging these subtypes with our novel trial designs? Well, we need rapid identification at the point of randomization. This could be feasible with electronic health records, but really difficult with multi-omics. Your labeling strategy needs to be scalable across multiple randomized trial sites. It's also important that the phenotype labels are reproducible and have biologic plausibility for the intervention being tested. Um, if we take one sort of subtype that was discovered in a cohort five years ago, is that really gonna match uh, the patients you're enrolling today in the new trial? Uh, is it likely that uh, a particular phenotype, maybe it's Mars 2 or Delta, is going to be uh, have a biologically plausible benefit from the treatment you're testing? And as we mentioned before, uh, it's not the case that every subtype is present in every patient population. When Seneca phenotypes have been mapped to those in the Mars consortium in the Netherlands, we see actually that the alpha beta subtype are far less common, in part because of the different case mix uh, patients and their ICUs. So our brief conclusions, again, only a 10-minute chat today, uh, is that sepsis, of course, is common and deadly and deserves all of our focus. Not all sepsis is the same, and it's probably a false hope that one size fits all treatment is the best strategy. Now, mapping heterogeneity of sepsis to randomized trials is actually quite hard. That's why we don't have a lot of examples in the literature right now. We need generalizable and scalable phenotypes. We need point of care identification, adequate sample size for those subgroup by, uh, by treatment effects, and we need to probably have biologically plausible treatments for those individual phenotypes. So this is a, a, a high standard, um, and yet many folks are working in this area, and we look forward uh, to those results forthcoming. Uh, as with any talk on this topic, I thank J Jason Kennedy, our project manager, Xu Wang, a primary biostatistician, Charisma Center, NIH, and a broad mentorship team, uh, and check us out at the Charisma Center and Translational Clinical Science Program. Thanks a lot. And we thank uh, Dr. Seymour for record recording that presentation. Um, we're going to move on. Um, we're moving well along through this symposium to our final speaker, Dr. Annette Eleno Nagabarano, who is an emergency physician and president of the African Federation for Emergency Medicine. She works at uh, Milago Hospital, a hospital I know well, so it's our um, hospital here in Hamilton is a sister hospital with <coughs> Lago, and we often send our trainees there in Uganda, where she's worked through the pandemic, not only running the emergency medical services, but also in their high dependency COVID unit and the intensive care unit. Welcome, Annette. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. 
Um, I'll quickly go into my presentation. I'm going to be looking at prioritizing quality improvement for sepsis in emergency medicine. So I'm just going to start with a quick scenario and perhaps something many of us have experienced, especially in low and middle income settings. So imagine uh, late in the night, you receive a phone call informing you that a close relative of yours was urgently taken to an ED in a rural part of the country. That's about 300 kilometers from the city where you live. Uh, just pausing for a question. Are you confident about the quality of care she will receive? And in thinking about quality, what does uh, quality emergency care mean to you? And as you're pondering this situation, uh, what core attributes are you thinking of that best describe your definition of quality care? So quality care is not something that is easy to define and perhaps has many definitions depending on who you're speaking to. Is it, for example, getting something right or getting the type of care you, care you would envisage for your loved one? Is it reducing error? Is it appropriate medical care? And there's so many other words related to quality care, like quality assurance and quality improvement that perhaps are part of the complex sphere that is quality. Now, academically, uh, many people define high-quality health care, uh, specific high-quality health systems are those that deliver, you know, consistent high levels of care, and that is really care that improves or at least maintains health, and is care that is valued and trusted by the populace and responsive to the changing needs of the population. Again, another question for us, is the healthy system that you work with um, focusing on quality of care as part of their core business. And the reason I ask that is because there are so many reasons why we as health workers uh, should care about quality. Uh, statistically, between 5.7 and 8.4 million deaths occur simply because of poor quality of care in low and middle income countries. And unfortunately, majority of the people who receive the worst care are the vulnerable populations. In many instances, Simply accessing care does not necessarily guarantee that you will get care that is, is going to improve or maintain your health. And therefore, quality of care is key uh, to ensuring global health security, especially in low and middle income countries where we have few resources. And perhaps focusing on quality will help us better utilize our resources. So quality is actually multidimensional and there are so many aspects to quality. I'll just unpack the various aspects uh, as we discuss them. So first is effectiveness. And this is really about providing evidence-based uh, care to those who need them. Uh, safety, avoiding harm to care, people-centeredness, ensuring that the, uh, uh, the care responds to individuals and community needs, timeliness, and especially in emergency areas where we need to reduce waiting times, uh, both for people who are receiving care and even for those who give care so that we improve uh, patient outcomes. Equity and perhaps moving beyond equity and speaking about social justice so that we provide care to whoever walks into emergency departments or any other parts of the hospital should also ensure that care that is provided is integrated and above all that is efficient, especially in our settings where resources can be very, very critical in, in determining the quality of care that we provide. So how exactly uh, do we measure quality? 
Now, assessment of quality is an essential function, and you cannot talk about uh, good healthcare when you don't talk about uh, 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 quality. So to assess it, there are so many different measures, but many of them are mapped against the Donabedian framework, which looks at, at structures, processes, and outcomes. At the African Federation for Emergency Medicine, we've developed some quality indicators that look at these three areas. In structure, things like ED, length of stay in the emergency department. When you come to outcome, things like mortality from sentinel, other six sentinel conditions. When it comes to processes, uh, things like uh, antibiotics given for pneumonia, which are very important to management of sepsis. And if you look uh, at specifically uh, quality improvement in emergency departments, there are so many methods you can you can use in, in improving quality. Uh, perhaps I'll focus on these four, the PDSS cycles, process maps, cause and effect diaphragm, diagrams, and mortality and mobility meetings. PDSA is something we are perhaps most used to, uh, many of us who are practicing clinicians, and it's the plan, do, study, and act. Uh, 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 process of uh, uh, addressing issues so that in the end we have uh, changes that result in improvement and collect and involve all the different actors collectively. I'll give another uh, the cause effect diaphragm. Again, it starts with identifying a problem. For example, take uh, delaying initiation of antibiotics for sepsis patients, and you can put it at the uh, at the right hand of this diagram and look at the five different spheres and under each identify uh, um, a, a, a cause that is resulting in the problem. An environment, for example, high volume emergency unit, uh, under people, uh, that ED nurse, um, the number of ED nurses, uh, perhaps their training, materials, maybe uh, syringes are, are unavailable out of stock. Look at methods um, used in the department, specifically protocols. Is there a sepsis protocol? And looking at the equipment. Uh, there, for example, blood uh, culture bottles. The other thing is process maps. Again, also starts with identifying the issue, but here you can uh, look at the task and then work through the entire process uh, that eventually leads to the task. And I'll give an example of giving a patient an uh, oxygen, a hypoxic patient oxygen, and you can trace the entire process from when a patient arrives all the way to when the patient gets oxygen and troubleshoot uh, issues along the entire process. And the final one I'll uh, uh, just touch on is mobility and mortality meetings. These are multidisciplinary opportunities to discuss issues. And uh, 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 and, and it's it's a very good quality improvement tool, especially in clinical set settings. And you can discuss anything from a mortality case to a clinical complication to a sentinel event, to adverse event, to an accident that happened in the unit. And it involves an entire team, you know, uh, uh, sitting and discussing issues without bias and without blame. It often, if it is used well, can be a very good uh, uh, QI method. So when we look at quality care for sepsis, again, I'll just project the framework that I spoke of. And again, you can unpack quality care for sepsis all the way uh, looking at the various spheres from effectiveness all the way to efficiency. Quality improvement and uh, uh, for sepsis needs to be based on local data and experience within local settings, especially, uh, and, and I'll address the LMIC uh, colleagues online, you need to generate data. Some of the data coming in from other settings is not necessarily applicable in your setting. So there has to be an intentionality in generation of data. So WHO has developed a number of tools for uh, uh, strengthening health systems and also quality improvement. That 
that are applicable for sepsis management, especially in emergency departments. The first is a systematic assessment tools. In this place, uh, to improve uh, a quality of, of care for sepsis patients, you need to do an emergency care systems assessment. This is available in English, French, Spanish, and Arabic, and you can assess the entire health system, uh, the entire emergency health system, and be able to troubleshoot and plug loops that will affect care for patients, including for emergency patients, including sepsis patients. The other is focused on a health facility. It's called a HIT tool, Hospital Emergency Unit Assessment Tool, that is designed to evaluate the structure and functions of an emergency department. The second group is clinical care training. Um, there are two tools here. There is the, the BEC course, which is a basic emergency care course. It's an open access course. You can Google it on, even after my presentation. And it focuses on uh, important skills for uh, frontline health workers who are managing acute illnesses with limited resources, especially uh, sepsis and others like injury. There's also the emergency unit management course that teaches a systematic approach to management. Oftentimes, as clinicians, we fail, not because of our bedside problems, but because of man bigger management issues. The next is clinical process tools. Uh, and here we have a number of things. First, uh, I'll speak about is triage, the integrated interagency triage tool, which comes with a manual. There's a medical and care uh, and trauma care checklist that helps you to tick off key uh, things you need to have done for patients in the emergency department and as they leave the emergency department. There's also standardized clinical forms that ensure patients are clocked and documented appropriately. There's a guidance on resuscitation area designation and also essential resources for emergency care. What should you stock in your emergency unit? Uh, the uh, next category of tools is for strengthening data and quality improvement. There are standardized clinical forms that, that like I mentioned, that feed into an international registry for trauma and emergency care, which is a web-based platform that helps you to collect and analyze data on your emergency care, uh, uh, on emergency care visits. In this way, you're able to, as clinicians and managers, to uh, address specific issues. This is just uh, what the IIT looks like. It's uh, categorized as patients red, yellow, and green. Uh, 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 based on uh, assessment, it does not need um, uh, um, tools to do blood pressure and all. Initially, you just you can just assess a patient based on their complaint and be able to triage them. Uh, and finally, generating and sharing learning around quality improvement should be approached from a global level as we are doing now, but also regional within our continents and nationally. There must be systematic data collected and 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 in. To inform uh, policies and processes and success can only be achieved if we involve leadership, if we are innovative about uh, our data and our practice uh, and our protocols, if we also have effective coordination among us, all the important stakeholders, including patients. And I was glad to hear people talking about uh, patients and their voice uh, in this, in this uh, conference. And finally, involvement of multiple cadres and sectors. Again, quality improvement for sepsis must ensure the system environment is appropriate, we reduce harm, we improve clinical and bedside care. 
for example, through things like protocols, but also that we engage patients, uh, their families and communities in their care. Uh, uh, as I conclude, just as part of my uh, pre uh, preparation for this uh, talk, a lot of the material used uh, for us from the WHO uh, Emergency Care Toolkit. Again, it's something that is free access. You can find it uh, on, through a simple uh, Google search. So thank you very much and uh, right back to you. Annette, thank you so much for that. Um, we do have a couple of questions for you. Um, the one one was, what was the most important challenge to practicing quality improvement in Uganda? How have you overcome that? I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges uh, and perhaps uh, I'll categorize them into three. Uh, there is uh, uh, knowledge, uh, there is resources, and there is uh, uh, attitudes. And uh, the biggest for me, and and, I've, uh, and this is uh, from uh, friends of mine and emergency care colleagues, uh, some of whom are online, and we've had these discussions. And the important, the biggest for me has been attitudes. The attitude towards quality improvement is not good. Knowledge, you can feel, you can send people material, you can do trainings, you can do seminars, uh, uh, resources, you can buy, you can write grants, you can get funding. But for as long as people don't have the right attitude towards improving uh, quality, of care and none of that is going to matter. So we have to change from inwards uh, out. Thank you. Uh, the second question is, do you think there's a difference to the strategies that might be needed in low and middle income countries um, versus the strategies that WHO package compared to what we might use in a developing in um, first world countries? Yes, uh, 100%, the strategies are different. First of all, uh, they're completely different settings. Uh, 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 different uh, uh, resources. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been involved in protocol development uh, uh, for our setting. In, in, and, and I've had discussions with colleagues who are working in high income countries. Their issues are, are, are very tiny, are very specific and small, and they're way advanced. Where I am, I'm just trying to say, are there antibiotics? in the facility in the first place and there's no antibiotics i cannot and that's a management issue and for me i'll have to focus on ensuring the supply chain process is is okay that managers understand the importance of consistent availability of antibiotics uh, for example uh, and yet the issues in, in in a high income setting perhaps will be you know antibiotic delivery was delayed by two minutes how do we reduce this from two minutes to you know, 10 seconds, and that is uh, uh, utopic for me in my setting. So assess those different types of challenges. And so the analysis, like I presented, you have to look at the entire system and you can use any of those four methods to identify what is the actual problem in your setting uh, so that you address it appropriately. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to bring this session to a close and thank all of the speakers for today for a very interesting journey from the, the patient voice all the way through to how we make the system better at the eMERGE end. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, particularly CSL Bering, who sponsored this session. And I'm going to hand it over to my colleagues and friends, Dr. Flavia Machada and Dr. Tex Kassoon, to uh, close off this full day. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alison. And thank you all for this wonderful section. Let's just join all the wonderful sessions that we had today.
This was again a success from the Global Success Alliance. Uh, it is uh, again, uh, we had more than 10,000 registrants uh, in this event, and we know that this is very important both for uh, people there are in resourceful settings and in high income countries. We discuss a lot of important issues in our fight uh, against sepsis. I also want to thank uh, the team from Global uh, Sepsis Alliance that organized all this. And certainly my colleague, Evangelis uh, uh, Giamarellis, who uh, organized this with, uh, with us and certainly in our president, Tex Kassoun and also all of our speakers. And also invite you for uh, the Third World Sepsis Congress that we are already organizing and then that we're gonna have place next year. Thank you very much for all you have done for us today. Thank you very much, Flavia. And I'd really like to echo what you've said. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in this conference. Now, um, although it has been held over one day, this has been a mammoth task and you and Evangelos had shepherded us through this very well. Indeed, we had 39 speakers from 22 countries. You mentioned we had um, eight sessions, two, uh, including two panel sessions, and over 10,000 member, uh, 10,000 attendees or registrants from over 180 countries. So this is truly a global conference. Uh, this could not have ha been um, done without the support of us, uh, numerous over 60 national and international uh, diff uh, different organizations that have really been invested in sepsis care and have supported us. And indeed, um, for us, we are very grateful for the support of our um, seven amazing sponsors, BD, Janssen, Thermo Fisher, CSS, CSL Bearing, Biomerics, Inflorex, and radiometer. In fact, the aspiration of the World Sepsis Congress and World Sepsis Highlight has always been to bring global knowledge um, to those across the world, even those in resource poor settings who may not be able to um, afford to attend conferences or access the information. And I think that um, as a global body, we have truly achieved that through generous support. Now, all these sessions will be were recorded and will be released weekly, starting on Tuesdays with the opening session this Tuesday, May the 3rd, and a full release schedule be, will be on the Congress website once the, once the Congress has closed. Uh, we have al already also started planning uh, for the fourth World Sepsis Congress, which will be scheduled in April 2023. This is going to be an exciting Congress and we've really um, engendered to bring the, um, the best team together such that uh, we are going to follow in the same trend we've had. Now, these are no extraordinary, these are no ordinary times. But as you can see from this Congress, that despite the extraordinary burden of uh, clinical work, despite a tremendous toll of COVID-19, medical progress have been made in, very, in many fronts. And we must not lose the fact that the tremendous progress and innovations that we've seen during COVID, um, sepsis and COVID bears great similarity as you've heard and um, um, the understanding of the approaches and advanced diagnosis and management and, and innovations in COVID-19 
bears relevance to sepsis. And the message also is very clear from this is that we all have something um, at stake in this. You've heard about advocacy. You've heard about the press. We've heard about um, the infodemic. Uh, we've heard about um, the issues with uh, pushback against vaccines and various therapies. And I think that um, we all have a role to play. As Laurie Garrett, who wrote two very uh, informative books, um, The Common Plague, about she predicted the Ebola epidemic about a decade before it occurred, and Betrayal of Trust, wrote that to prevent pandemics such as this, we need the pharmaceutical industry, laboratory, government, and health forces worldwide. We need all these forces need to be marshaled together to target to the for this elusive target. In fact, we also need not just the fruits of scientific labor, but also politics, sociology, economics, and even elements of religion, philosophy, and psychology. And I think Flavla, in your talk, you really made a plea for a lot of that so we can bring people together uh, from all aspects of the globe, all low and resource countries uh, to really work together towards this. In 2021, the WHO um, spoke about 10 global health issues. And many of those are in keeping with the resolution, the, the sepsis resolution of 2017. I'll just read a few. It's build global solidarity for worldwide health, speed up access to COVID-19 vaccines, uh, medicines, et cetera, advance health for all, tackle health inequities, provide global leadership on science and data, revitalize effort to tackle communicable diseases, combat drug resistance, and act in solidarity. And much of those things resonate very well with sepsis. It is my hope that we'll continue to act in solidarity in tackling the ravages of sepsis today and in the years to come. Please visit our website and join us at the GSA. Um, we are all together in this fight. I wish you all a good morning, good night, good evening, wherever you may be. Be safe. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Thanks a million for your interest over the last couple of weeks. We really appreciate it. A huge thanks to everybody who worked on the 2022 WSC Spotlight behind the scenes. The program chairs, Flavia Machado and Evangelos Giamorelos Borbulas, the scientific committee, and Marvin Zick and his team from the GSA headquarters. This session concludes this year's World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, but we will return with the fourth World Sepsis Congress in April 2023. Stay tuned to this channel for any future announcements. Thanks again and stay safe and well.